something one of the advisors said this weekend, Cedric Richmond, he said, Republicans defunded the police by not supporting the American Rescue Plan. But how is it that that is an argument uh, to be made when the president never mentioned needing money for police to stop a crime wave when he was selling the American Rescue Plan? Well, the president did mention that the American Rescue Plan, the state and local funding, something that was supported by the president, a lot of Democrats who supported and voted for the bill, could help ensure uh, local cops were kept on the beat in communities across the country. Democrats are set to take control of the U.S. Senate, House, and the White House. This will go down as one of the most progressive administrations in American history. God willing, everything is on the table. You now can pass things without a filibuster threat. That's right. Oh, you'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to the Ruthless Variety program. Uh, you will rarely, if ever, hear more dishonest answer than that. I mean, congratulations to Peter Ducey for being the journalist who, like, actually did his job there, as, as he's pretty much become known as in that room. And for her to have the audacity to say, actually, it's uh, Republicans who support defund the police— like, it, it, this is like Big Brother-esque. Like, are they trying to force amnesia on the American public and forget the year of the left pushing defund the police on the American people? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, you know, I'm not big on using the phrase gaslighting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I don't think I've ever seen a, a greater example of gaslighting than this. It's just absolutely absurd. And you know that the Democrats are looking at the same poll numbers mm -hmm. that we've been mentioning here on the Variety program, that they are now trying to spin it as, oh, it's actually Republicans that wanted to fund the police. Not us. Right. Not us. Not the headlines you've been reading for two years. And from all of our you know, people in Congress, it's actually the Republicans it, that are trying to and do it's, it. And it's fact, factually incorrect. Incorrect. Right? So what she's saying is, oh, no, 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 all these police departments, they need the additional funding from this boondoggle that the Biden administration put forward because the police departments were underfunded. Right. Right? Right. Okay, well, let's take a look around. Let's yeah. take a look. Minneapolis, yeah, they defunded their police. Yep. The Minneapolis City Council, of course, you knew it was Democrats there, voted to defund the police. That's, that's fact. Dude, AOC and de Blasio got in a fight over who wanted to defund the police more How much? in New York. So like in every major metropolitan area in this country that is controlled exclusively by progressive Democrats, they've either outright defunded, reduced, or had a full-throated debate about defunding their police departments amidst a crime wave. And now they would have us believe that the Democrats are the ones right. who are attempting just to fund police? Up. Yeah, they're just standing up for, for the boys in blue. Oh, my God. God. Oakland City Council voted to defund the police, stripping more than 17 million from, from from that department. And then here's the results. Here's the thing that you have to look at is so number one, it was the Dems who were calling on the police to be defunded. Number two, they actually voted for it. This is not like an opinion. This is not like, oh, uh, some nebulous reason I'm coming up for. There there's actual record of these votes going down. And now look at the results. So Minneapolis, year-to-date homicides are just more than double in 2021 compared to 2020. I mean, the thing is, you don't have to go far. Like, you don't need us to dredge up every headline and talk about how they've defunded the police or they've tried to defund the police. It is mainstream into the Democratic Party. Right. If you ask your average lawmaker on Capitol Hill right now, walk into the House of Representatives, ask, ask a progressive lawmaker, 
do you think that police budgets are inflated? They will say, absolutely. They will say, absolutely. But yet now you have a president of the United States, because he knows it's a problem yep. for them, is trying to pretend like somehow this is a Republican issue? You've got a crime wave going on in, in major cities across the U.S. They've seen the polling. And the, the, the problem is that like the, the, the left is basically run by like a bunch of rich, liberal, coastal folks who come up with these crazy ideas like, oh, yes, maybe we should defund the police. You go into actual neighborhoods that are suffering through crime, the folks there want more police. Right. They don't want it defunded. Well, it's, it's a, a perfect example of this. We already saw in the New York mayor's race, yeah. right, where, you know, you had, you know, the progressive liberals in these havens in Manhattan or, or whatever, or Brooklyn, you know, voting for, you know, the super progressive candidates for mayor. But then you've got, you know, the the former cop, yeah. you know, up by 10 points. And that's a, that's within a Democratic electorate. And who's voting for him? Older African-American voters. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Because he's rich, white, progressive, coastal idiots have appropriated their ideas to everybody else and pretended like it's a cultural yes. revolution. They've right. got a right? doorman at their building. They don't care if there's no police around. You know? <laughs> it's just incredible. It, it's me. incredible. And look, we're going to play Demo Journal today. Uh, lovely. And, and, and we're going to remind um, the libs who, who hate listen to this podcast what they were saying over the last two years about defund the police. Um, but what else do we have on the program today? Man, we got first of all, we got an incredible guest. An incredible guest. This guy... For starters, I didn't know much about him, right? But it turns out the dude ultimately led the Green Berets in the search for Bo Bergdahl, and wow. he talk and he talks about it, right? He talk he talks about it and gives us like his view. It's Representative Mike Waltz, and this is a badass. If you've ever seen a badass, this guy not only was a Green Beret, he's the only Green Beret in Congress. He also was worked in a civilian capacity, advised secretaries of defense. He was a counterterrorism advisor to Dick Cheney, which is how you know you're a badass, right? If you're, if you're, if you're Smug smiling. He's so happy to hear that. <laughs> I mean, I've been waiting for this interview. Like, uh, this guy has definitely seen some shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a great interview. I think you guys will, will love that. I have one question off the top before we get going. Um, Duncan. Yes. Are we getting the bikinis or not? Oh, my God. Here we go. Uh, so what Holmes is referring to is the request now that we make a ruthless bikini in, available in the store. There's been a lot of requests. Look, it's a summer. I get it. We're going to get it. It's going to take a little bit of time. It's going to have to be designed. It doesn't come like out of the box on the store. <laughs> You're going to design I'm going to have to make a request. Are you going to design them? The, yes. the design team there is going <laughs> to do the job, which is amazing. Like, like yeah. Uh, We've got that. Me we've gotten that much support that, like, now we can get them to be like, Dude, okay. And the hats team. are dropping now. We there's people been tweeting now photos of the hats. We we yeah yeah. I think I'm gonna grab one of those. We designed with the with the team at uh, Teespring. Fantastic. They're great looking stuff, and we've really appreciated people tweeting out their uh, their photos when their merch arrives because man, those things look great. Yeah, keep it coming. Yeah, and follow the Instagram account. It's Ruthless Pod. Oh yeah, we're actually trying here. Yeah, we're gonna try. We're gonna we put got, her back in, dude. It. Intern Kelly, she's fantastic. Wonderful. She's gonna be getting a bunch of content up there. Um, you know, so keep posting photos of you and your Ruthless merch, and uh, we'll we'll try to get it on the Instagram. What's the URL for the merch? It is store.ruthlesspodcast.com. Excellent. 
And it's like basically the only way to be cool this summer. So pretty much, you know, like buy that stuff. And that's awesome. Anyway, the other thing we talked about in terms of uh, a few business items to clear up, the other thing we talked about last Friday on the special episode was that we were going to entertain questions from people who who posted five-star reviews of the pot. So I looked back and I had a couple that I thought were terrific. I know that you had a look at a couple that you thought were terrific. Uh, one from Joe Uliana uh, from Pennsylvania. He says, the very best variety program. I happen to agree. He said, a consistently great variety program. King of the Hills should be in network TV. I agree. Yeah. Why doesn't Hollywood Hen get some cool intro music for her segments? That's a great question, Joe. Uh, very good question. You know what? I think Duncan. I'm just going to throw it to me. I, Duncan can more, answer More one. asks of me. Well, I'm just saying. It's, it, I think it's unfair and, and perhaps per, maybe sexist. Wow. You could definitely drop a, a Hollywood hand intro. For, um, first dragging your feet on the bikini. Second, uh, acing the only woman out of her own intro okay. music. I, I will make intro music for Hollywood. Hen. I'm thinking I'm thinking something with like maybe some like shutters, like yeah, the like, cameras like going off. Yeah, I, like I think that. I can do that. Okay, yeah. all right, that's great. You so, got one. Thank you for the question. Um, yeah, look, I, I'm I'm going to read this one just because I know if I don't read it, Smug probably will read it. Uh, so I'm just going to yeah. Uh, title is the best program on the interwebs. Uh, my my question, when and where will there be the first annual Ruthless Charity Golf Tournament? Also, where's the banana hammocks? <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> seriously, seriously, though, keep up the good fight, guys. Sitting down with a drink or a cigar in this podcast at the end of the day, of a, end of a long day at work has become one of the highlights of my week. Who's that? Mr. Wizzle. Oh, Mr. Wizzle. That's, Mr. Wizzle. Uh, honestly, I fully support the idea charity golf tournament that'd be great that would be fantastic i love the idea we should definitely try to figure out how to do that yeah yeah look we, we've got the studio now we got a youtube we're getting professional fellas yeah it's big time this, um, is, this is a real thing i love that idea on on the banana hammocks I'm uh, let's let's see how the bikini sells <laughs> let's slow the roll on the hammock yeah let's slow the roll on the hammock <laughs> i know what you're i know you're why you're doing that i mean you know you're the model for the hammock. i'm not getting in the hammock unbelievable speaking of triggering we've got a follow-up so so this is more crazy colleges last time we told you about uh brandeis university saying that trigger warning is triggering like the the, the phrase itself yeah and, and now, picnic remember picnic oh that's yeah. right and yeah. now it's gotten uh even even more bonkers i guess so cornell university is offering an anatomy class that explores quote the connection between the cosmos and the idea of racial blackness. I think it's an astronomy class, Smug. Yeah. So, I mean, so I guess astronomy is is, is racist now. Yeah, uh, the stars, space is racist. And th- this is the real kicker. This is what got me is the class is co-taught, okay, the, an astronomy class by an astronomer and a professor of comparative literature. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. This is like a glimpse into the future. Like, it is. We, it's like you can't have people teaching expertise you have to have the expertise and then somebody in to tell why the expertise is racist totally it's the same reason we've been already told that like uh math class is racist <laughs> uh i mean my theory 100 percent holds man this is yet again this is coastal elite liberals who are like my fail son can't get into a university we got to remove the sats 
uh, we got to remove uh, any kind of a requirement possible except for, you know, me sending a letter being like, hey, I will pay this much to get junior into your college. I'll tell you what, I'd like the opportunity to sit in on a college course. And just like as they start teaching me, being able to stand up and object and say, actually, this is the way it works, which is kind of what this they have going on here, right? It, it's, I mean, it's what is a professor of comparative literature doing in a science class? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, dude, look, higher education has lost its damn mind. So this is my new favorite thing. You know, I meant I mentioned it with Brandeis. Uh, the endowment for Cornell is six point nine billion dollars. Tax them. Tax them. Tax them. Nice. Tax them. Yeah. At a high level, too. I'm not talking about just like a skim off the oh, top. I know. I want some. I want deep cuts here. Yeah. I think we should tax them and see if we could bend that old cost curve of college. And if we can't bend it, oh, it's a, yeah. Go that's back a, for a little more. That's yeah. a good point. How about it's that? A, that's well, a good point. Well, it, it does beg the question. You know, if you got a six billion dollar endowment, why are you charging students fifty thousand dollars a pop oh. to attend per year? <laughs> right. And then all of a sudden, look at the federal government and be like, "Oh, you know, we got to subsidize these things. Costs are just saddling students." Oh, really? Yeah. Like six point two billion dollars worth of costs. <laughs> it's, like, it's time to the, tax the endowments. These, I'm these universities turn around. They're like, "That's a YP. That's a U problem, not a B problem." <laughs> My brother, who went to Cornell uh, and is very much a higher education guy, is going to be furious at this segment. He doesn't listen, but he would be furious at this segment. It still stands. They should tax it. They should tax it. Look, I have, no, I have nothing against higher education. I went to college, you know. But, I mean, if, if we're going to have this conversation about the cost of college, maybe we should look about where those, you know, costs end up. Well, you know, speaking of uh, monopolies, we've got Brian Williams over here from MSNBC. I'm still stunned he's even a lot on the news. But uh, he's suggesting that Fox News be removed from military bases. Uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious the reason for this. Like, you look at the way ratings have been just, like, plummeting, plummeting for, like, all the left-wing networks, which I now consider NBC to be absolutely left-wing as heck. Uh, CNN's numbers are, like, uh, what's his name? Jake Tapper shows down, like, 77%. Yeah. Stelters is down. Like, people have stopped tuning into this, right? And now, I mean, what else do they have to do? They're like, wait a minute, uh, we just we just got to remove the competition. Yeah, I love it. It's 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 like they're the drunk at the bar swinging wild at two a.m. Yeah, you know, right. I mean, like their ratings are in the toilet, and the only way that they think they can claw their way back is to take out the competition. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, it's like aiming at Fox News here, right? right? Well, right. If, first of all, it's in hell of a position to take that you ought to deny content to American troops serving overseas. Yeah. Right, right. That's yeah. a hell of a hell position. of a take. But then secondly, to act like Fox News is somehow out of the mainstream. The only people that are out of the mainstream here is MSNBC and CNN. I mean, yep. absolutely crazy. If you were to go back to like Walter Cronkite days and do a comparative. I wish there was somebody alive from that who hadn't gone absolutely bonkers like Dan Rather or whatever. That they could say like, actually, guys, in terms of the shift in what you all are covering, it's not Fox News. Yeah, I wonder what Walter Cronkite would think about. Uh, Chris Cuomo during the height of the pandemic yeah, dancing around with a Q-tip with his brother the governor on who was doing a horrible job at the time like uh. that's not journalism that's 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 a shame that's that, that should be a scandal these idiots have created an entirely separate reality for idiots <laughs> they really have <laughs> uh, um, alright I want to get right to the infrastructure issue because yep a lot of talk has been going on about this bipartisan, quote unquote, bipartisan infrastructure deal 
um, that at the end of last week, it looked as though there was at least a handful of Republicans and Democrats that agreed in the White House was trying to help agree with it, that they ought to get together and do something that's on infrastructure, right? Not human infrastructure, as liberals have been talking right, about. Like but roads like, and bridges. Yeah like, yeah, like actual, as we've come to understand, what infrastructure. infrastructure. Right, right, yeah. right, right. And so they come to some kind of a deal. And immediately then, Biden comes out and, sa- and issues a veto threat, essentially, he was, he was there ostensibly to support this process, but, right. he, but he issues basically a veto threat saying only if it's paired with an entirely partisan Democratic, rec- they call it a reconciliation bill. Basically, the only thing that that means in terms of your ears that you need to know about it is that they can be done entirely with Democrats. Right. right. It's a left wing crap that they can't get through any other process. Right. All the massive tax increases on every breathing American that they've been talking about, that's what they're talking about. And they want that to pass first Yeah. in order to deal with this bipartisan thing. <laughs> this is absurd. Right? But then, like, he finds out within hours, of course there's no bipartisanship if that's your if that's your prerequisite. So every Republican bails on that. He spends the entire weekend trying to walk it back. Saying, oh, no, 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 I'll sign whatever you send me. Pelosi, meanwhile, comes out and goes, no, 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 what he said the first time was where it was was at. And then you have Sunday shows filled with Democrats who can't answer the question. (laughs) Right? So these people literally, they can fuck up a two-car parade. Yeah. Like, these people are the worst. Let me just rewind the track. The Biden administration has managed to pass one consequential bill on a totally partisan basis the likes of which was supported by 90-plus Republican senators not once but twice in the previous Congress and President Trump. They managed to make that entirely partisan. Infrastructure, something is totally bipartisan. They've managed to make totally partisan. And they then have the audacity to try to act as though it's anyone else's fault that they fucked up this entire negotiation. Yeah, I've noticed that in in some of the media coverage now. uh, We're recording this Monday night. Uh, is now somehow this is Mitch McConnell's fault. I, it, it's, a, it's Mitch McConnell's job to get 10 votes uh, for Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden on the infrastructure this plan. Is, this is the headline. And I don't mind. I don't think McConnell would mind it either. But this is the headline in Politico. McConnell tries to derail Democratic infrastructure strategy. <laughs> Joe Biden did it. Joe Biden literally tried to derail it. They can't. They cannot get it done. Dude. I mean, the proposal, if you remember, was a $4 trillion proposal that came out. It was rife with tax increases that would ruin our economy. Yeah. And there's they couldn't get any Democrats, basically, or Republicans, obviously, to, to support it. And then and then so they have to turn to these bipartisan talks to get something done and then immediately blow that up. And then somehow this is somebody else's fault. I mean, that's the thing is so like they they had they had it like on the on the one yard line. Right. They were right there. And then Biden comes out and he says. Hell no, I won't sign that out of nowhere. And like his aides are like, what the hell? Like, did Biden, I don't know how this happened. Did he like wander out of the White House in a robe and just like <laughs> shout this on a hot mic? And then well, his aides have to run and be like, right. oh, okay, Grandpa, we've got your pudding inside. Holmes, Ha-ha, he Holmes, wasn't serious, guys. I'm wondering what your take is on that. Like, what what's going on? Is Pelosi pulling the strings here and got him out over his skis? Or wh- Yeah, so what? I mean, so the way that this works is everybody works in concert behind the scenes when you're trying to put these deals together. Pelosi knows she has an incredibly thin House majority. Right. And she's balancing the idea that she's probably not going to be able to pull a ton of Republicans over no matter what. 
right? So she basically needs to unify her conference, and that means a bunch of progressives that aren't going to vote for anything unless it ruins the American economy, mm-hmm. right? That's their prerequisite. Right. Unless unless we do away with capitalism in America, we're mm-hmm. not we're not <laughs> supporting a damn thing. And so she's on the horn with Biden, undoubtedly, saying, "You got to help me with this second thing." Right. Right. We we need the reconciliation package. I need your endorsement on that. You should say that you're not going to So it all makes sense that he comes out and says it. Meanwhile, everybody that he's been negotiating with is like, huh? Yeah. You just pulled the rug out from all of us. Like this was supposed to be a bipartisan deal. And they're like, oh, shit. Yeah. But they never even thought that through. Like this is everybody gave shit to the Trump administration interaction with Congress. This is like a hundred times more incompetent. Yeah. A hundred times. Like nobody. Well, and the coverage of it is incompetent. Last time I checked, we have a Democratic president. We have a Democratic Senate. We have a Democratic House. And Politico's article is about how (laughs) Mitch McConnell, McConnell, will he derail it? (laughs) Will the people with unified government in Washington get this across the finish line isn't the question. It's Mitch McConnell's going to ruin it for us. I just, <laughs> and, I, and I think Holmes brings up a huge point is this administration has been so incompetent. They have nothing to show for their time there. They right. will always say, oh, oh, we passed uh, the American recovery plan. Do you know what the meat, the heart of the American recovery plan is? Is Trump's proposal of sending out $2,000. And they couldn't even get that right. They couldn't even right. get couldn't that even right. Couldn't even get that right. But here's the thing is they can, they're incompetent because they're allowed to fail and suffer no consequences because the media will write this story about how, well, actually, it's Mitch McConnell's fault. Well, dude, so Politico, again, we've been ragging on them a lot lately because they've totally changed the way that they cover. They're no longer an industry publication. It's like sort of a leftist activist deal. They're Politico PM. It's like a like an afternoon newsletter that they send out that's supposed to update people on like where legislation is going. Right. Right. What happened during the day, essentially. Yeah. The title of it is McConnell plays skunk at the infrastructure party. <laughs> As this if, is incredible. As if Biden didn't say what he said. Dude, Biden made all those Republicans working on, on the bipartisan bill walk the plank <laughs> right. and, and and do a presser at the at the White House and then comes out and, and, and you know, reneges on the thing and says, no, we also need the partisan thing through reconciliation. Uh, like uh, imagine being a Republican senator and thinking you can take any negotiation in good faith at this point. I mean, I haven't talked to McConnell about this, but knowing him as well as I know, I bet he is laughing his ass off. He's probably like, I told you so. I bet he is laughing his ass because this is precisely what yes. his prediction of this would be all along. They are who we thought they, they were. They are who we exactly. thought they were. That's yeah. exactly right. Denny Green. Yep. May he rest in peace. Legend. Absolute legend. Absolutely. All right. Guys, summer of violence. I love the argument. Is it Roaring Twenties or is it Summer Violence? Again, I'm sticking with Summer Violence. <laughs> it's true. I I, re, I hate to say you were right, but you were right. So the, kind of the uh, the argument for the other side. So the Roaring Twenties argument, uh, the journal had this nice little article where they said the coronavirus pandemic plunged Americans into recession. But instead of emerging poorer, many came out ahead. Here's the like little asterisk. You know, Americans with higher income jobs, you know, white collar people who could work from home. Yeah. Yeah, because they save money by not commuting or eating out when there was a pandemic. But it's, uh, you know, what you also end up with is 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 the people who aren't in that lucky, you know, situation. Yep. You've got the people who are restaurant servers, house cleaners, other low-wage jobs. They, they haven't been able to come out, you know, 
come out clean. ahead. Right. So, yeah. so looking at these statistics, it's like, okay, it says that U.S. households added $13.5 trillion in wealth last year. Well, that's 100% from the people who were like, hey, guys, this is, it's, it's so Their bad to different. be on Zoom. I have to, like, order in my meals. This is so tough. And those are the people who were like, yes, we, we have to stay closed. We absolutely have to stay closed. It's because they don't care. They don't care at all. They don't care if every restaurant closes down as long as they can still find someone Uber Eats. Right. You know, they don't have to work at a restaurant. It's They're like not counting on that income. It's like when we talked about Stephanie Rule a few episodes oh, ago. Totally. Remember yeah. that? And yeah. she's yeah. talking about, you know, these small business owners who don't want to pay um, their hourly workers more. Come on the program and defend yourself. You know, and it's like how much DoorDash you think Stephanie Rule orders, and you know, right now. But I so a good component to this is we've talked a lot about on the program is that the government just continuing to overfund unemployment in a lot of ways has given perverse incentives mm-hmm. to an awful lot of people, and it turns out there's this, this uh, MSN article that said one in five adults is neither working nor studying, right? And so what that means is basically nobody's even looking for a job or at least a large number of people are not looking for a job nor trying to train for a job at this point because they're just continuing to subsist, right, on what the government has incentivized right. over the last year, right? I mean, that is something. One in five young adults no longer Yeah, so listen to, some of these, studying. listen to some of these stats, Okla. In the first three months of the year, about 3.8 million Americans aged 20 to 24 were not in employment, education, or training. Uh, that's up 740,000 or 24% from the year before, before many of them lost their jobs or deferred college enrollment because of the campus shutdowns. Uh, that seems problematic. <laughs> That's a huge yeah. problem. Huge problem. For the first time in history, the jobless rate for teenagers in May was lower than the rate for workers age 20 to 24. <laughs> I mean, guys, it's just it's such an obvious problem. Again, you keep coming back to this. The economy you don't have to actually be an economist. You don't need to know what derivatives are. You don't have to actually understand what makes sort of complex economic theory work to understand that when you pay people not to work, they're not going to work. You know what I mean? Right. That's just, that's kind of what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, look, it's it's what the progressives have wanted, okay? Because if they can't get uh, the $15 minimum wage, federal minimum wage passed, this is their way of backdooring them. Right. If you keep sending checks to people and you make it impossible for businesses to compete with the check, eventually they believe, well, all these businesses are going to have to raise you know, the, the income of their hourly employees. They, they actually just go bankrupt out of business. Yeah. Right. As you've seen in everyone listening to this pod, everybody listening to the program understands because they're looking around their own neighborhoods yep. and seeing how that is played out. So but the Wall Street Journal actually wrote what I think is the definitive proof in what we're saying is that Americans are leaving unemployment rolls more quickly in states that cut off the federal benefits. Right. Incentives matter. This it is like the basic matters. this is basic economics. It's not arguable. No. You know? No. And then here so on the other hand, so so you're seeing that the states who who cut those benefits, people start, you know, gaining employment. Who'd have thought? But on the other side, this 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 blew my mind. San Francisco run homeless encampments cost sixty thousand huh? a tent. They cost sixty thousand. So here, sixty grand a tent. A tent. So the city's six, you know, quote, safe sleeping villages provide homeless people with tents, <laughs> three meals a day, security, and wash. They're paying sixty thousand. Wait, who's paying this? Well, the taxpayers, of course. Unbelievable. But, but sixty thousand. 
a tent. This is definitive proof. Everything we've talked about so far on the program is definitive proof in the failures of liberalism. Yeah. Definitive proof. Dude, half the people on Capitol Hill who listen to this podcast don't make 60 grand a year. Right. 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 Oh, my gosh. It's just... Uh, these people are so dishonest, huh? They are so dishonest. Meanwhile, meanwhile, you've got this crew of progressives, and I know we have a nuanced, interesting thought on this, who still do not want to believe that the pandemic is over. <laughs> right? I, I caught this over the weekend, this uh, Wajahat Ali um, tweet. And this is so good because it just encapsulates everything you want. He says, I feel America has forgotten we're still in the middle of a pandemic that has killed more than 600,000 people and there's a deadly Delta Plus strain and our kids are still not vaccinated. Sigh. <laughs> like, what's it going to take? What's it going to take? And then, hold on, he goes on, he does it like more. He says, I see packed restaurants and people inside stores and malls and their kids aren't even wearing masks. I feel I'm in a horror movie. Oh, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> so here's the thing. Don't tell him. Okay. That's, that, yep, that's right. That's right. <clears throat> Don't tell I, him. I get it. I get it. What I'm wondering, though, is how... So we went from Delta... Uh, now it's Delta Plus? Oh, yeah. We're going to... When do we get to, like, Delta First Class COVID? <laughs> Amazing. You know? I like, love that just take. Just, like, absolute... The, the, the best strain of COVID. <laughs> if you just went out right now on MSNBC and said that you have reliable information that there's a Delta Plus economy comfort... Yeah strain that's going on you're going I, on tv i guarantee you that there's going to be a bunch of people locking up and triple masking tonight <laughs> but, but, but i mean like this this is the thing is so i think this explains a lot of the failures among the dem governors and a lot of the success among a lot of republican governors namely desantis where he focused on where the problem is the problem is elderly population folks who, who are very susceptible to dying from covid and that's where he focuses uh, the attention on getting these folks vaccinated and got attacked for it, by the way. Uh, meanwhile, these are there. These people are like, until everyone is wearing a mask everywhere, we're not going to be okay. When you see the rates of infection among children and how little it impacts them compared to like, you know, the elderly population, like, what are they after? Do they want forever <clears throat> locked in? Yes, because that's it, it accomplishes their ideological goal. Right. Right. What, what I really love about this, because it's it's Wajahat Ali, is this is the same guy who sat he sat on a Don Lemon segment with Rick Wilson. Oh, yeah. Talk making fun it. of Trump people saying how stupid they are and they don't understand the world. And this guy is entirely uh, against basic science, basic science. I mean, the actual science here is that Pfizer, Moderna and I think almost all the vaccines that we're talking about at this point have been proven to protect against coronavirus for years, including Delta, Delta Plus, Delta Plus economy, you know, all the things that we're talking about here. And they may not they may not even need the boosters and all the discussions that we're talking about about that. Like, that's the science. Right. That's the science that these people are not listening to. They just want people to go back into their homes, tell, be told when to work. They'll send them an allowance every month. They'll tell them who can work, who can't work, whose kids can go to school, whose kids can't go to school, pay off their preferred constituencies while the rest of us just sort of lay in ruin and watch the government dictate to us what our lives should be like. <laughs> I mean, so here, I mean it, again, it comes back to the issue of where their focus is. 
So you've got skyrocketing murder rates. Portland, it's up 800%, right? Minneapolis, up 56%. Philadelphia, up 40%. You know, people are being killed due to this, like, crime wave, but they're worried. Their focus is on we got to bring back masks for kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they, they had they they had an interesting. I forget where this poll was from, but they, there was a, I think it was Gallup. There was a Gallup poll that showed it basically asked Republicans and Democrats if they thought that the pandemic was over, and like fifty seven percent of Republicans thought that the pandemic was largely right. over. Four percent of Democrats. Four. 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 Don't tell them. Don't tell them. This this actually goes perfectly into what I wanted to get into. The coming red wave. Ah, uh, yes. We, we see a building. We see a building. Uh, the, the first thing I want to get into is, is this great little factoid we got from some polling. Uh, Biden's issue approval in swing congressional districts. It's, it's basically all underwater. Economy and jobs, 45% approve, 52% disapprove. Helping the middle class. 44% approve, 53% disapprove. Immigration slash the border with Mexico, 36% Ooh. approve, 60% disapprove. Ooh. Relations with China, 37% approve, 52% disapprove. Looking like a red wave is building. Well, that's the thing, because the all of these libs sort of have this coping mechanism where they look at national polling that's largely encompassed by overrepresentation of coastal urban elites, right? Mm -hmm. right? So like in very blue, densely populated areas, you can basically outweigh the rest of the country. Too bad, I'm sorry, we actually live in a republic where the middle of the country gets a say in what the policy is for the, for the entire country. So if you break it like they did here, you break it into the swing districts and the places where majorities are made and lost, eh, Biden's not doing so hot. Right. Pretty, pretty bad, actually. Pretty bad. Pretty bad. Who would have thunk? And they're always, the funny thing is that the alternate reality is so pronounced with these libs, with their information flow, with the, the entirety of institutions in America, whether it's Hollywood, entertainment, uh, the news media, higher education. They are shocked. They're going to be shocked when they get wiped out in November 22. And shocked. So, here, here's some more polling. This is from Texas. This is a UT poll. 57% of Texas voters, including nearly 9 in 10 Republicans, and 47% of Hispanic voters disapprove of Joe Biden's handling of border security and immigration. You know, <laughs> maybe that's because he came out. What did he say? All Latinx people should be afraid. Latinx. Of being, Latinx should be. Like, maybe stop calling them Latinx to begin with. I mean, it's. I've, no, like, in the, all the polling you see, it's like only 1% of Latino population is okay with Latinx, and 99% are like, stop calling us Latinx. Yeah, and that's just, that's just white liberals who identify as Latinx themselves. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. But that, that's a perfect example of how insulated and idiotic the White House is, in that we had a full-throated conversation months ago about how Latino, by, by Democrat, yeah. Democrat Latino voters yes. who are saying, please, for the love of God, stop stop calling us Latinx. Nobody in, nobody in the Latino community identifies as Latinx. And then these guys feel the necessity for the president of the United States to go out and refer to Hispanic Americans and how crazy Latinx. He was like, all Latinx people are scared of getting deported. It's like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? That is so offensive. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's incredible 
the small universe of white coastal liberals that our president of the United States chooses to talk to. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I mean, <clears throat> the Democrats, you know, their whole spin on this is like, oh, you know, Republicans are obsessed with these cultural issues. Yeah, we're obsessed. You know, we're obsessed with stuff. It's CRT this. It's Mr. Uh, Mr. Potato Head that. And it's like, nah, 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 nah. Look at these numbers. The, these basic pocketbook issues issues that are ex- extremely important to the security of this country and Biden's underwater across the board in swing districts. It's, it's, it's not, it's, this is not like a bait. This no. is, everybody's telling you exactly what it is that they feel. They just don't care. Dude, and they know it. Kamala wouldn't have gone to the border, albeit El Paso. Yeah, but a she thousand miles be, away from the right, crisis, but literally. She wouldn't, dude, she wouldn't have gone to the border if they didn't actually know the truth. That's True, it. but they gotta they gotta go on TV and get the clips for primetime Matto where they say Latinx, <laughs> and 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 they're like that meme of the dog with the fire around them in the house saying this is fine, right? <laughs> because totally. there's some Democratic pollsters out there that are pretty smart that know that this is a problem, and they're constantly raising their hand. By the way, you know they stop right. they stop sort of advising their client behind closed doors, and they're like putting it out into the, the press. Meet, right. Hey guys, we got a huge problem. Right. right. The alarm's going off, but Joe Biden's asleep. You know what? Don't tell him. Don't tell him. Don't tell him. Have them all sit in their homes, triple mask, not making dinner reservations and not driving to work. My commute's terrific. Fantastic. Speaking of, uh, you know, damn operatives passing talking points to journos, we got a game, folks. Let's do it. Oh, demo journo. Yes. Crowd favorite. Let's get right into it. Well, so we're going to do this uh, episode of the game. Uh, on, you know, defund the police, abolish the police. I think it's useful to remind yeah. uh, these Democrats and journalists their position on on defund the police and abolish the police, you know, from the last year. And it's important because mm-hmm. you can see they saw the polling and right. now they're trying to just like gaslight America into thinking right. we uh, were the ones actually, who wanted it. Republicans <laughs> want to defund the police. You can see it. The, the, the talking points went out. They're pushing back hard because they know, you know, the rampant crime that the Dems supported with their votes to defund the police, they know it's a problem. So, uh, you know, now that we have the new studio, we actually recorded a better quality yeah, version got, like, an HD. of the song uh, for Demo Journo. Let's go to that right now. Demo Journo, Demo Journo, Demo Journo, nobody knows. Mm, melodic. It sounds Beautiful. good. It sounds so good. Well, we also made it a little bit shorter. Yeah. I know that was I a... thought part of the charm was the fact that it went on two stanzas too long. <laughs> but I like it. I like that from a professional standpoint, this is an improvement. I think it's good. I think it's good. All right. So, uh, you know, I'm going to read four statements, three of which are from the media. One is from a Democratic operative. And then Holmes and Spug have to guess who is the Dem operative. Okay. Statement number one. It's not a slogan, but a policy demand. This is on defund the police. Just as a reminder. Okay. Okay. Statement number two. Does this spending make the country safer than its peers? No. Wow. Okay. Statement number three. But what does defund the police actually mean? And is abolish the police different? In practice, its meaning is far more nuanced and complex than any glib dismissal of all police and law enforcement. 
This is fun. Mm. This is fun. I can't wait to read all their explainers about how it's actually our fault. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, yep. They're coming. These people are so dishonest. This yeah. is incredible. Shameless. Okay. And uh, number four. Would defunding police lead to an uptick in violent crimes? Defunding police on a large scale has never been done before, so it's tough to say. Oh. Oh. <laughs> This is a difficult. Oh my God, this is tough. Can I get uh, uh, statement one again, please? It's not a slogan, but a policy demand. Okay. I need I need number two again. Does this spending make the country safer than its peers? No. I think I got mine. This is the same media who's going to now spend the next week saying, "Well, actually, Republicans wanted to fund the police." Shameless. And can I get four again? Would defunding police lead to an uptick in violent crimes? Defunding police on a large scale hasn't been done before, so it's tough to say. Okay, okay. Um. Hmm. Okay. I got mine. You do? I will, uh, look away, I will secretly tell Duncan which one I believe is the dem operative. Okay, I'm looking away. Duncan, this is my guess. Okay. That's the operative. Alrighty. All right, let's work through this a little bit. Um, so I think that the would the uptick in violent crimes, the number four, I think that's a classic journo explainer yep. on why we're not like what, why we shouldn't be concerned about it. Yep. Cause they always try to the, the thing is that when they get these talking points with like the obvious things they try to gaslight by being like oh well nobody knows yeah nobody yeah, knows exactly They're like, hey, no clue are they going to write an explainer now about how great it was republicans uh, defunded the police since that's the new reality of course not <sighs> of course not <laughs> like i'd love to see like i'm shocked that it wasn't a take that like well if uh, joe biden nuked all gun owners would that be a bad thing huh hasn't been tried before we don't know <laughs> <laughs> all right so um can you can I get number three one more time? But what does defund the police actually mean? And is abolish the police different? In practice, its meaning is far more nuanced and complex than a glib dismissal of all police and law enforcement. So I, here's the thing. That's going to be a journo. It should be an operative. That's going to be a journo because, again, they're trying to explain why you shouldn't be concerned. That's the thing is I thought that was journo because it's very clearly just trying to launder a dem talking point. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean that's exactly what that is. It's it's just it's do it's like where democratic operatives fail and where the, the media is like Mm-mm-mm-mm. here I got this. Yeah, no, no, I got it. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of this. I'll talk clean this up. <laughs> Where's my mopping bucket? Um, so I'm gonna put I'm gonna put that in the journal. So then I get you know it's between one and two. I'm guessing. Does this slogan make it safer than its peers? It's a little uh, unclear exactly what we're talking about. The number one, it's not a slogan but a policy demand. I I think that's what progressives said. I think that I think that they I think they basically spent the summer of 2020 
saying exactly that. So I'm saying number one is the Dem operative. That's my guess. Is it, That felt like something that could have come straight from like, I don't know, like Rashida Tlaib or something like that. Yeah. Well, you guys are right. Yes. Yes. You yes. guys are right. That's God, we're getting good at this. You're good. You're good. That's uh, from Ilan Omar. Yes. Wow. Yes. yes. You know, the best, the best part about that statement, it was her actually dunking on Barack Obama. <laughs> wow. <laughs> What a find. He said. Noted conservative. Yeah, noted conservative Barack Obama said, you lose people with snappy slogans like defund the police. Oh, she's like. She comes over uh. the top being like, it is not a slogan. We actually (laughs) don't want police in our neighborhoods. (laughs) But now now it's Republicans who defund the police. Incredible. Listen, I got to say hats off to the selection committee. My goodness, those were four doozies. Excellent picks. Good stuff. Excellent picks. Oh, I love it. Can we get can we get the the playing of the music one more time just cuz I'd like it. Let's do it. Demogorno, Demogorno, Demogorno. Nobody knows. All right, so let's get to this interview. Mike Waltz, great American, no matter what. The service that he's had to this country is incredible. I think you'll find his comments very insightful. I want to welcome to the program Congressman Mike Waltz. Uh, we have not had the formal chance of, of meeting before, but I've heard a lot of great things, and I'm really excited to have you on the program. Welcome. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So you've been in Congress since you were elected in 2018, but your background is in the military. In fact, I think, I think it's the case that you're the only Green Beret in Congress. Is that, is that right? Yep, that's right. Uh, there have been, by our count, four SEALs. Uh, uh, only one green beret. So I just tell them it takes four of them to equal one of us and, <laughs> and we, and we could call it a day. Right. I bet but, they really um, appreciate that. Yeah, of course they do. And they f- fully agree with me. Um, <laughs> and we've also verified, I'm pretty sure the only member of Congress still jumping out of airplanes. I'm still going in the national guard, uh, as, as, as a Colonel. So you're still, you're still jumping out of airplanes in the, the full mess, huh? Yeah, that's right. Uh, still doing the the weekend drills uh, and and the annual training. Um, you know, I could I could tell you about it later once, but really had the most amazing jump of my life uh, since I've been in Congress, and that was jumping over Normandy oh, wow. uh, for the 75th anniversary of D Day with a 92 year old uh, paratrooper that hadn't jumped in 75 years oh, and, and and jumped with us. It was over St. Mary Gleese out of the ridge, the original World War II plane that led the invasion fleet. Oh, uh, it was awesome. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And just by the way, just not to dive into it, but if, if you haven't gone to Normandy, everybody add it to your bucket list. The French there, people there were incredible. Not like the ones in Paris, the ones in Normandy. It's kind of like comparing, <laughs> I don't know, North Florida to San Francisco, right? But Huge banners, massive uh, uh, signs and banners. We love you, America. Thank you for our freedom. Welcome to our liberators. You would have thought uh, D-Day had happened like last year, not 75 years ago. It was it was so amazing and special. And to do it with a 92-year-old paratrooper. And I asked him on the ground, I said, how was that? And he said, hell of a lot better than last time I jumped <laughs> getting shot at by the Germans. I mean, he had a blast. It was really cool. Oh, that's but, cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the military background, and uh, and just really proud to have served. So one of the things I want to pick up on because you had uh, last week made some news um, in a hearing 
I think this stems in large part because you, as a, as a member of the military, have had a lot of people reach out, current member, members of the military, expressing concern about things like critical race theory and how it's yep. coming up basically in the military. We've heard Tom Cotton say the same thing. And I think in many ways, they look to, to guys like you as outlets to be able to get the story out and right. discuss their concerns. And so you, you did that. And uh, it didn't yeah. sound like it was really well taken. <laughs> well, and, and but to your point, you know, that's one of the reasons I ran for office. You know, we've gone, we're at a record low number of veterans uh, in the Congress. In the 1970s, it was three quarters, 75% of the House and the Senate where vets had served. You know what it is today? It's sitting at 18%. Wow. Record low in our nation's history. Why does that matter? It's not so much understanding, you know, necessarily veterans issues or foreign policy or military issues. It's the ethos we bring. Right. It's that, you know, in the foxhole, all that matters is country, is mission, is getting the job done uh, and taking care of your brothers and sisters, your left and your right. And, and that's what, you know, to to go to the hearing, I had a number of cadets, families, parents reaching out to me. And one that jumped out in particular was a seminar that was taught titled Dealing with Whiteness and White Rage that over 100 cadets attended, apparently, uh, taught by a woman, Dr. Carol Anderson, who teaches that white rage is a result of black advancement, not 200 years you know, or 100 years ago today, uh, right? And who called the uh, Republican Party platform one of white supremacy. And so what I think um, General Milley and, and the Pentagon is missing is that, and, and I have a lot of respect for General Milley, by the way, we're fellow Green Berets. I actually think he's done a good job as chairman uh, and a lot of respect for what he brings to the table. But what I think he's missing in this regard is one, this isn't a history lesson. Right. Uh, this isn't, right? He said, well, I've learned about communism and fascism. That doesn't make me a communist or fascist. No, this isn't, these, these instructors aren't teaching that this happened a hundred years. They're teaching that this is happening today that all white people are oppressors today, all black people are oppressed today. Uh, and the thing, the other thing that I think he's missing is that they're teaching that our fundamental institutions, our constitution, our courts, our political system uh, are established to maintain white oppression and are fundamentally evil and therefore need to be resisted. Uh, and those institutions need to be torn down and rebuilt. And, you know, Josh, that's one thing for some kid at Cal Berkeley right. uh, to be taught. It's bad enough there. But one of these cadets will have their finger on the button. Uh, and they're learning this at a very impressionable age. Uh, and when it comes to civilian elected leadership oversight of our military, I have real problem with that. The thing the media left out was actually the Secretary of Defense agreed with me. He said, yeah, this goes too far. Uh, and, uh, and it was only later that, that General Milley, you know, kind of launched into, into his speech, but I think he's missing the boat in those fundamental regards. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I listened to General Milley's comments and it seemed like he was directing them towards you. Um, in fact, I think he even referenced as a green beret, a fellow yeah. green beret. Right. And, but, but basically the context to which he approached it was, well, you know, we're teaching people things and it's important to understand history and understand all it, which I, I thought. Okay, but that's not what's happening here, right? That's not, yeah. That, that's, that's not, that's exactly, that's not what's happening. They're teaching that this is what's going on today. This is how you need to behave today. And that our institutions, our constitution, 
uh, and our other civilian institutions are evil, flawed, fundamentally racist, misogynist, colonialist, uh, and, and, and need to be torn down today and going forward. Uh, and and you know, the bottom line is you can't fight racism, which I feel like I need to say, I believe is absolutely abhorrent. Extremism needs to be torn from the ranks at all levels of all types. But the, you know, the answer that they are pur purporting is wrong. You don't fight racism with more racism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm going to, to the other piece is that this isn't some GOP talking point. You know, as, as we said, this is coming to us from families. From, this was brought to my attention uh, by the family of a cadet. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. But, but you get the sense, because of General Milley's answer in particular, that they're really not taking these concerns all that seriously, right? Or at least not as seriously as some of the cadets have by taking the extraordinary measure of reaching out to a congressman to actually express their concern. Yeah, I think they really are conflating and confusing this with history lessons, and with diversity training, I, as I said in the hearing, I 100% support uh, a military that is diverse uh, and, and that has equal opportunity for all Americans. We need that. Uh, that is the strength of our military. But they're conflating the issue of diversity and history classes with critical race theory and what it teaches uh, about the United States of America today and going forward. Just because I'm I'm sort of unfamiliar with the military institutions and the, the academies and whatnot, it, is this is this kind of new? I mean, I don't remember sort of the social engineering aspects of curriculum yeah. being, you know, it, you you expect it again at Berkeley. You expect that, right? Yeah. But, so so they do walk a line between being a you know a, a university academic institution and then a military academy, a leadership institute that teaches character and ethics, uh, has an honor uh, an honor court and system. Uh, and, and how to be a future leader uh, of the military. But, you know, I think at its core, our military's strength has been that the day you put that uniform on, you're all wearing the same uniform, you all have a shaved head, you are mission-based, merit-focused, uh, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter in the foxhole whether you're black, white, or brown, or whether you were rich or poor before you came in, you're all the same. Uh, and that, you know, it, in following the, the guidance of and, and dictums of Martin Luther King, you're colorblind. Uh, and I, I can tell you for sure, the Chinese military and, and uh, the terrorists that have shot at me really could care less about all of those things. It's just that you're American or you're not. Uh, and that's what our military needs to be focused on, period. Yeah, no, no question about it. Let me ask you, just staying on this, on this general topic in the military sure. and foreign policy, um, do you have any concerns about total withdrawal from Afghanistan? Uh, do you have any concerns? I mean, like it seems to me like we've sort of rushed past this debate in a lot of ways, although we've been in this war for such a long time. Consequences right. are pretty significant um, if we're- Well, look, I get, I certainly get the frustration, long, hard, expensive, difficult, uh, that in terms of the, the amount of time and blood and treasure we've spent there. And it's obviously been deeply personal to me. I've lost Green Berets uh, in Afghanistan. But what the kind of just bring all the troops home, uh, you know, stop the endless wars uh, advocates cannot articulate is how do we keep a lid on terrorism going forward? Half the world's terrorist organizations still exist. The intelligence community is very clear uh, that Al-Qaeda does intend to come roaring back in the wake of Taliban advancement, does intend to attack the West again, if given the chance. And so what 
you know, what we're seeing play out is a repeat of what Obama did in Iraq, where he just yanked everybody out, didn't have a long-term plan. Uh, we, that led to the rise of ISIS, a caliphate the size of Indiana, attacks across Western Europe, inspired attacks in the United States. Pulse nightclub is right on the edge of my congressional district. So we've got to stay on offense. Uh, I want to fight forward, not back here. Uh, and I, I think a small presence focused on counterterrorism and continuing to build and train the Afghan military is was absolutely appropriate and could be sustained. And if you know Biden's goal is to bring some troops home, well, you know, we still have thirty thousand in Germany, fifty thousand in Japan, uh, thirty thousand in uh, South Korea, right? I mean, right. there's uh, we still have troops in the Sinai watching ships uh, from a UN mission back back in, back in the sixties. Uh, and, it, you know, the other piece that I don't think is being discussed is that base that we have there, Bagram Air Base, is the only base in the world in a country that physically borders China. And it's sitting right on their back door. Oh, uh, so you've got a base uh, that's on the western flank of China, southern flank of Russia, eastern flank of Iran. Uh, so when we talk about great power competition, why would we give up? Uh, you know, th that base right on right on their flank. And the Afghans absolutely want us to stay. The other piece that you've seen that's uh, that's getting a lot of attention is taking care of our local allies, our interpreters. Yeah, uh, I, I have personally sponsored some uh, that have come here to the United States. These interpreters stood and fought with us, took bullets alongside us and were critical uh, not only to dealing with the local populace, but fighting alongside the Afghan army, the Afghan police, we had to be able to communicate with them to be able to do that. Uh, they've started businesses, uh, they're thriving, but I also lost one who was found with American documentation on him at a Taliban checkpoint. Uh, he was taken back to his village and beheaded alongside his cousins and relatives. So these people are being hunted down as we speak. We have a moral obligation to get them out. Interestingly, then Senator Biden in 1975 voted against the evacuation of the South Vietnamese, said we had no moral obligation to support them. I hope he corrects uh, his past sins and writes that wrong. It's not just a moral, it's just not a humanitarian thing to do. It's a, it's a strategic and national security right thing to do because the military and the intelligence community is saying there is a decent chance we are going to have to go back. Yeah. Uh, and when we do, what local allies are we going to have? Who's going to trust us again uh, if we have to go back and kick the snot out of Al-Qaeda yet again? And so I, I really, uh, we're pounding the table and it's bipartisan, bicameral, uh, really across the board that Pentagon has said they can do it. The government of Guam has said they're ready to accept so that we can take them to a third country and finish this processing and appropriate vetting. It's all sitting with Biden in the White House. Well, I mean, what could possibly be the... <laughs> the hesitation there. I mean, yeah. I, I don't understand. I, what what could you say to a future potential ally if you've abandoned your interpreters right. at this point after a 20-year-long conflict yeah. in Afghanistan? And it's not just them. It's not just they put their lives on the line. Like I said with my interpreter that I lost and his brothers and cousins, they put their entire family's yeah. lives on the line. I mean, the Taliban go after the whole family, the whole tribe to yeah. send a message. Uh, and so either Biden just doesn't think it's important, doesn't care, thinks we have no moral obligation, like he said, with the South Vietnamese. 
I suspect the State Department thinks it will play into this narrative that, that um, you know, that the, the bottom is falling out as a result of their withdrawal policy and therefore wants to portend or pretend that everything will be fine. Uh, but we know that to, to, to not be the case. Anybody who served there knows that these people have a bullseye on their back right now. Yeah. Well, one interesting uh, experience you had in Afghanistan that I'm not sure everybody knows is that you led a special forces unit searching for Bo Bergdahl, which, as our audience yeah. might recall, is the the gentleman who essentially went AWOL, right? Um, right. But, but put forces in, including you, in grave danger trying to find him and then was summarily greeted as a hero by President Obama right. after right. trading for his, for his freedom. Uh, give me some sense of that, your reaction. Yeah, so, so my career has been somewhat interesting in that a lot of people don't realize both the Navy SEALs and U.S. Army Green Berets have reserve units which means you got to have a day job. You got to stay in shape and be ready to go when called upon, but you got to have a day job. My day job actually is in the Bush administration as a civilian policy advisor under Secretaries Rumsfeld, then Gates, and then eventually as Vice President Cheney's counterterrorism advisor. And I have this fascinating back and forth of, there I was in the White House Situation Room, Mr. President, this should be the strategy. Uh, this is, and then I have to be one of the only idiots in Washington that actually had to go do it. <laughs> Better make sure the strategy's right because it was my butt on the line when I got mobilized to go out. Uh, and the fascinating part would then be coming back, taking off the uniform, put on the coat and tie again, go back in the White House, like, hey boss, um, let me tell you what's really going on in the ground. Let me tell you about ground truth. And in one of those tours, I literally, uh, left the White House uh, as they were handing over the Obama administration and then took command uh, out uh, on the Afghan-Pakistani border region. Here I am coming from the White House with all the strategy that I helped craft. I'm going to be the next damn Lawrence of Arabia and, and, uh, and fix this thing. Uh, and Bo Bergdahl goes on his little desertion tour. And it I can't tell you, everything stopped. Oh. We were ordered... General Stan McChrystal was in charge at the time. Stop everything you're doing, supporting the Afghan election, going after the Taliban, you name, stop everything, every asset, air power, intelligence resource was after going after and finding him because we knew that he would be a huge propaganda victory uh, for right. the Taliban. We also knew at the same time he had stacked up his gear. He had left his weapon behind his body armor behind, he had emailed his dad denouncing America. And here's the thing that's never really come out. He didn't just desert, he actually defected. He mm -hmm. went to the Taliban and was helping them initially until they got tired of him, uh, and then started not treating him so nicely, started treating him pretty badly and he tried to escape. And then that's when they really started treating him badly. But never in a million years did I think I would wake up one day and see President Obama with his parents in the Rose Garden celebrating him as a hero. Susan Rice on the Sunday talk shows saying he served honor with honor and distinction. I was the first actually, it was my first ever national TV appearance. I went on Brett Baer's show the next night and said, time out America, not a hero, put up your ticker tape parade. Here's what actually happened. Men uh, died during the search looking for him. And I later testified next to the parents of one of the lieutenants uh, who died. We went into places we never would have gone yeah. without the preparation that we would have had. And what you can't prove 
is all of the people around the rest of the theater that didn't have the air support or the intelligence support or the other things that they needed because it was all diverted. You can't necessarily prove that that in court, but we all know what happened. And the mother of uh, the mother of this lieutenant who died looking for him uh, said, "Where's my White House ceremony? Oh, Where's man. my son's White House ceremony?" Uh, and it, it, it's just gut wrenching. The other thing that was gut wrenching is seeing him walk out of court a free man. Now the military judicial system did reduce him to private, take all his benefits, but they gave him time served uh, for the time he was in, uh, you know, held held hostage by the Taliban. Wheeled out behind Bergdahl as he walked out a free man was a sergeant in a wheelchair that had been shot in the head during the search for him. Oh. No longer can speak and is paralyzed. So, you know, again, why I ran for office, these types of decisions have real consequences. Uh, and the men and women downrange, both the ones who didn't come back and the ones who are out there now, deserve better from Washington, D.C. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're sure glad you're there. Uh, listen, Congressman, I got I got three big questions that all, all right. our audience listens to. Like this is you know, this is like the high level stuff. We now we now know everything there is to know about foreign policy. But on to the important things. Sure. <laughs> Your last meal on Earth, sir. What would it be? Oh, man. You know, I'm a I'm a native Floridian. And I'd have to go. So let me tell I have to go with fish, but not just any fish. In Florida, there's these things called fish camps. And these aren't just seafood restaurants. They're basically, oftentimes, they're no more than a shack that is set up at the marinas where the fishing boats come in. So you see these guys carrying the fish right off the boat, right into the back of the kitchen. And it is the best, freshest fish you'll ever have. That's you know, that's if I can plan it. I know, uh, you know, my last meal's coming. If yeah, no, this Armageddon, is a planned one. This is a planned yeah, one. Yeah, like if Armageddon hits and I'm just driving down the road, I hope I'm driving by a boiled peanut shack, right? <laughs> because if you've never tried boiled peanuts, I mean, it's a true Southern Floridian delicacy. Uh, and man, I, I, it's easy to get addicted. I love that. I love that. Okay. So boiled peanut, I've not had that, which I'm surprised you can still make in this allergic world, right? You're going to get some. I'm bringing yeah, right. some. I'm bringing some to you, and you can only get them on the side of the road. Oh, nice! Right? Like these these folks just sitting by the side of the road. They make them uh, fresh, and they're in their big crock pots. And you get you buy them in Ziploc bags by the pound. I love it. I love it. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. All right, second All question. Right. Second question. Let's let's do this because I know usually it's if you weren't involved in politics, what would you be doing with your life? I think we kind of know with you. How about if you didn't get on this career path at all, right? You weren't in the military and you're not involved in politics. What would you want to be doing with your you life? You know, I don't talk. I, I don't talk about it as much, but I'm I'm a proud entrepreneur. Uh, we I helped build a business with my partners from scratch, three of us in an attic. When I left as CEO to run for office, we were at 400 employees. We were on the Inc. 500 fastest growing company list uh, five years in a row. Hardest thing I've ever done. But what I loved about it was that, you know, you got that monthly scorecard, right? You knew, you know, you, what you were doing was either winning or losing, you know, and government things can just kind of drift uh, forever. But the innovation, the efficiency that that drives uh, is, is, is just, it was an incredible special experience for me. But I had to weigh that with, I'm also a space nerd. And so oh. I have a side goal of being the first Green Beret in space. So oh. probably would have been an astronaut. So Maybe the balance would be a space entrepreneur. How about that? You know, yeah, we'll go, we'll go mine the moon. 
Yeah. Well, you you, you got to talk to Bezos or Musk about getting into space nowadays, right? I mean, it seems like the private space travel is now the the thing to do. What one of the most special things I've done in office was getting uh, President Trump down to the SpaceX launch. Private sector rocket, American soil. Colonels Bob and Doug on the top of that thing. You know, they're Marines and Air Force, but I, you know, I don't give them too hard of a time. <laughs> that was just and watching that rocket go up was just awesome, and the whole country unified again uh behind but look the chinese are challenging us up there in huge ways and you can't be number one on earth if you're number two in space so we got to win this 21st century space race and uh one of the things i'm most proud of is supporting the space force we've got to defend what we have up there i love it okay all right so third and final question all right what motivates mike waltz more the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat man i have to say hardship motivates, right? I mean, I didn't make it through ranger school the first time I got, I got recycled, you know, growing up. I remember one of the things seared in my mind growing up with a single mom on the poor side of town, having to sell my toys to go get grocery money at the, at the flea market. But there, there's nothing like, and it's still gunk wrenching to me to even talk about, there's just nothing like losing men in combat. And, uh, and having to face their families and men that I commanded that I was responsible for. Um, you know, Josh, every day that, that I wake up and before I go into the Capitol, I look in the mirror, I look down at the bracelet that I wear for one of the Green Berets that I lost and tell myself to be worthy, right? And that's my message to all Americans, be worthy. Comport yourself in a way that is worthy of their sacrifice for you uh, and the, and the thousands and thousands of men and women that are out there right now willing to die for you and die for that flag and everything this great country stands for. Uh, be worthy. What a great message anytime, but particularly at a time like this. Congressman, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We've uh, really enjoyed this. Come back soon. All right. Will do. Will do. Ruthless. I love it. So how about that story? How about the story of the Bo Bergdahl that story? Is something. I, I, I've been told he's seen some shit, but man, he's seen some shit. Oh, man. I mean, first of all, the pressure of being Dick Cheney's counterterrorism uh, advisor. Can you imagine? I bet that, I bet this guy is the guy that spent all day with Dick Cheney. Leading a battalion of Green Berets. Yeah, and then leading a battalion. He's just a, um, he's a great American. I think it goes to show, we have talked about this a lot in this program, but we have provided another outlet for serious conservatives yep. to talk in a serious way about the shit that they actually believe rather than a recitation of January 6th or a recitation of the last four years and what they think about it. And you find out that these people have incredible depth. They're incredible. really like best in class bench on the Republican side that I've seen in 20 years of doing this. And guys like this just put an exclamation point on it every time you hand them the microphone. It's fantastic. And that's another fantastic episode. I said we wrap this one up. Outstanding work, gents. Another good one. Another banger in the can. So... Until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless. <laughs>